Maybe. Maybe. Let's see. I'm starting, we did, we're starting the series. A couple weeks ago, we started the series called uh, Becoming Whole. And as part of the series today, I want to introduce you to somebody. His name is Will. Uh, you may not recognize Will. Will's been largely ignored in the last few years. I want to talk about Will a little bit today, and then um, I'll talk about Will some more in October. Um, but uh, I we need to talk about Will because Will's not very well understood, and it's not Will's fault. He's kind of been largely ignored. His, his work has sort of fallen out of favor in our culture recently. Not a lot of people see the work of Will as very important. Uh, people today are more concerned with feelings and wants and rights. These are the ones that seem to sort of rush to the fore. These guys get all kinds of freedom, freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want. They've got free reign. The game today is about wants and feelings and rights. And Will has been put on the bench. And in the process, he just hasn't become uh, a real big player at all. Uh, he's gotten all out of shape. He's not really very strong anymore. And this is not only sad for Will, but this is bad for us. It's bad for you and it's bad for me because you have a will and I have a will and we need our wills. We need them critically. And when you and I are not taught to use our wills, to exercise our wills, then our feelings overwhelm our wills. And our wants or our passions, the Eastern Church would say, or our desires or our appetite, they just pummel the will into submission and they rule. Or then when we don't get what we want, we feel instantly offended and we need to blame somebody. And so the, the rights kind of perk up and we're like demanding that we, we have a sense of entitlement and we need to get what we want. And we demand, in fact, that we get what we want. It's ugly. It's ugly. Uh, so I want to return the will to its rightful place at the steering wheel of our soul. Our will needs to be strengthened and our will needs to be encouraged. Our will needs to know that, that the will calls the shots. The will doesn't have to keep getting kicked to the back seat. The will doesn't have to keep getting locked in the trunk of the car, right, and drawn out to some lake in Wisconsin or wherever that happens. We need strong wills. We need them. Now, I'm, I'm not aware of a place in Scripture that, it, that directly addresses the concept of a will, uh, though the concept of a person's ability to make choices is implied all throughout Scripture. So theologians have long talked about this, this um, category in, in classic theology called human agency, or more kind of popularly known as free will. And... Um, and you see this concept all throughout Scripture. Let me show you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. This is in the second chapter of the book, right up front, Genesis chapter 2. Um, let's see, God is speaking. He says, you may surely, he's talking to Adam and Eve, early humanity. He says, you may surely eat every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So right away... Humanity is given a choice, right? What's the implication of the fact that humanity is given a choice? Well, the implication is that we have the ability to choose, to, to make that decision. Later on, we read Moses talking to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life 
that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. So Moses is saying, essentially, I've given you a couple of options, and now it's yours to choose. Right? This is probably one of the clearest um, places in Scripture where we're actually just given this so plainly. After Moses, Joshua says something similar. Joshua 25 He's instructing the people of Israel, and he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers in the region beyond the river, river or the gods the, the Amorites of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here not only is there a call to serve, but there's a demonstration that Joshua has already made a decision, or a call to choose. He's already chosen, and now he's calling other people that follow him to make a choice. He's not forcing the choice, but he's definitely putting the choice on them. Because the implication is it's theirs to make. Um, Paul talks about, in his letters, this war between the flesh and the spirit. And there's all this choosing language there. This battle to make a decision to which the flesh, your appetites, or the spirit, spirit of God in you, will you be a servant? Which one? We go to Jesus. He puts discipleship in terms of choice. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. We hear this from Jesus, the, the resurrected Jesus in the last book of the Bible, John's revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice, opens the door. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So you got this beautiful promise of communion with the resurrected Jesus. But Jesus says to the church, you got to decide if you can open that door or not. Isn't it interesting that that's the picture that he paints? That's the metaphor that he uses. I am here. I am all in. In fact, I'm initiating contact. I'm knocking. My, inti my intent is to commune with you. Perfect, whole communion. Put in terms of like eating together. What's in the middle? The door. And that's what he puts, kind of puts it on us. Are you going to open the door or not? John Wesley, who was an English missionary to the American colonies in the 1700s, he wrote about this, and he put it like this. He said, for God to call people to choose, but not give people the power to do so, is to mock human weakness. So at different times in history, the debate about the degree to which we have the ability to choose has been waged, and he's engaging, basically saying, you know, if I'm going to tell my kid to clean his room, and he doesn't even have the ability to clean the room, then I'm just mocking his inability, right? So he says that a good God is not going to do that. So I would highlight two implications of this doctrine that is popularly known as free will. First implication is that part of what it means that you were created in the image of God, part of what that means is that you were created with the ability to make choices. Okay. So you have... By, by virtue of the fact that you are a creation of a creative God, you have the ability to choose. And the second, second implication is that you are responsible then for the choices that you make. So not only do you have the ability to make decisions, but you have responsibility to make decisions. And if this feels like a message that you're not hearing much of today, that's not your fault I feel like almost nobody is talking about stuff in these terms today. Um, we're going to talk more about the role, and because of that, in part, not as a reaction, but as a, an effort to be whole and healthy people, we're going to talk more about the role of the will 
in October. But what I want to do today is just look at one of the most practical. So here's where we've been. I've been talking about honesty and vulnerability, and it's been deep and thick and, and, and difficult And what I, the last two weeks. Today, I kind of want to pull up out of the jungle a little bit, get a big picture view, remind us about the, kind of the benefits of going here, and then we'll dive back in. All right, so that's, that's where I'm headed. What, in order to do that, I want to I talk about some of the practical or a practical and really powerful way that the strength of our will or the weakness of our will shows up on our daily, in our daily life. And that is in the area of our habits. Of our habits. Habits are remarkably important especially when it comes to our spirituality, okay? Because healthy spiritual habits or regular practices of spiritual disciplines or behaviors, or some people call them holy routines, this is what shapes us, okay? This is what shapes us. Our habits are what shape us. An action may make a difference. An action may have an impact, but... When we're going to talk about long-term formation, we have to talk about actions that become habitual, actions that are done repeatedly. So we're talking about habits that form us. I've taught recently about how we at Emmaus approach Sundays as a rhythm, not as an event, and that is because occasionally an event will shape you. You'll go to this great concert, and it will actually impact you. Or you'll have a, a conversation with one, it's happened to me, one conversation with one person one time, I never saw them again. It changed the direction of my life. That's happened maybe two, three times in my life. Mostly, we are shaped by routines. Mostly, we are shaped by rhythms. Mostly, we are shaped by, by habits. That's how you become whole. Our lives become whole as healthy actions become healthy habits. You with me so far? All right, so here, really specifically, is how this works. Typically, habits, and this is just pop, um, the, just, the, just the typical thing that you would read anywhere on, on how habits happen. Typically, habits are seen as having three parts, or establishing a good habit or breaking a bad habit takes three pieces of some kind. There's three things that go into that. First, there's a cue um, or a trigger of some kind, such as this. Okay, you know what this is? See, that does something to me. Yeah. So, that, that, it's like the first domino falls at that point. And, and, and the whole, I don't know, is it physiological? Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? I don't know what it is, but something gets started at that moment when I hear that sound. When somebody in the office does that, or when that happens in our home, uh, I'm like, suddenly, I want something that I didn't even know I wanted a couple of seconds before, right? That is, it's like a cue. It's like a trigger, and it puts in motion this whole process. And friends, our whole world is full of cues. Our whole world is full of triggers. People have figured this out. They know that this is the way we work. And so everywhere you go, you are exposed to triggers. Right? It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what you're thinking. You might see that trigger. You might smell that trigger. Uh, you might hear that trigger. Yeah! 
<laughs> Some of you guys are like, where's the remote? Where's the remote? Right? Right on. You weren't even thinking about that, and now you're like, when's this church service done? I'm like, gotta go. Right? So you hear, it's like we're just wired that way, right? We're like Pavlov's dog, and we just start salivating. I just heard that music, and I, I want to do it, and I want to, because I know that after that ding, something good is going to happen. I'm going to get fed. That's the dog thing, right? If you ever took a psychology class, Pavlov's dog. So first there's a cue, I smell the coffee. Then there's a process or a response to that cue, I want the coffee. I buy the coffee. And then there's a reward, right? I drink the coffee. This is the way it works. The cue, I hear the music. The response, I want to watch a football game. Uh, the reward, I sit down and I watch a football game. Cue or trigger, alarm goes off. Response, snooze. <laughs> reward, nine more minutes, right? Nine more minutes. Uh, trigger, to get emotional, trigger. Uh, I get criticized. You didn't really do a very good job with that. Uh, response, insecurity. Uh, you didn't either. Uh, your project actually didn't work out too well either. Reward, I feel a little more in control because I was feeling sort of insecure a minute ago. So whatever it is, whether it's something as silly as, uh, or maybe it's not silly, maybe it's vital, like coffee, or something more emotional, when that cue is followed by that response and results in that reward enough times, we got a habit. That's what we got. We got a habit now and, and a pattern that is going to be really difficult to break. So when I repeat these things over and over again, it can be 30 or 40 times for some things, or if they're especially powerful, if they're especially potent, if they access wounds or hopes or intense, hardwired uh, drives, appetites, if it's graphic, if it's holistic, all it takes is to go through this series three, four, five times, and you got to have it, okay? You are in a pattern that is either going to be life-giving or it's going to be destructive. It could be a great habit or it could be a really bad habit. So this is the basic assumed architecture of habits. Most of what I've read or heard, most of what you've read or heard about the formation of habits or the breaking of unhealthy habits. In other words, if you're given this basic assumption of how it works, and then we have the conversation, now how do we establish a good habit or how do we break a bad habit? Almost all that you'll hear in response to that question has to do with either disrupting that pattern or reinforcing it in the, in the case of trying to start something new. So let me give you three examples of what I mean by disruption or enforcement. One method of trying to change a habit, let's put it like that, is, is to avoid the stimulus altogether, to avoid the cue, to avoid the trigger in the first place. So if walking past a donut shop always results in you coming home with donuts, then you just need to avoid the donut shop. That would be an example of avoiding the cue, right? Um, if um, another example, um, oh yeah, if, if being alone and online always results in you viewing pornography, then you need to just avoid that situation altogether. That would be one way of reestablishing, uh, in that case, an unhealthy habit. Uh, avoid the trigger completely. A second method to try to 
change the way this hard wire goes is to try to connect the trigger to a different response. Establish a different response. So, for example, when you hear gossip and something inside you wants to engage, and you know that, but because of something you've read or heard or the unhealthiness of that habit, you've decided, I want to change that habit. What you do then here, according to this method, is you, you intentionally use that cue to be a, a, an indicator to a, a different response. So I hear gossip, I want to gossip back, but instead I choose silence. So every time I hear gossip, I'm training myself, in this case, to just go silent. It's an example of rewiring the trigger to a different response. Another example of that kind of thing that worked really well for me in college when facing sexual temptation was to run and lift weights, right? Uh, yeah, connecting a powerful cue to a healthy response which built a good habit in me that was good for me and that I felt good about. And I was ripped in college. I just got to say, right? <laughs> Yeah, okay, a third method of uh, disrupting these three steps is to just manipulate the reward. We're playing games now to try to, like, try to rewire this. So uh, an example of manipulating the reward is a friend of mine wanted to lose weight, had trouble losing weight, and decided to do it like this. Entered this weight loss challenge that cost a lot of money to be a part of with the understanding that if they didn't lose the weight, they would lose the money. If they did lose the weight, they'd get the money back. The, the, the key here was they couldn't afford not to get that money back. So when faced with the cue, I see food, the normal response, I want to eat a lot of that food, um, it, was, it was countered, it was affected by another response, which is I can't afford to not get that money back. And in this case, at least in the short term, it, it worked, it, they succeeded kind of by playing a game with themselves. My point in those three examples is to show that we try all sorts of ways to build good habits or break bad ones, don't we? We try all sorts of ways. And none of those is, is inherently wrong. Those are all kind of technique-y kind of things that might be really helpful. But we often place so much emphasis on the importance of specific details and particular situations. And again, that's fine. That's real life. But most um, mostly what we're doing in that case is we're just fine-tuning those three little dials. Cue, response, reward. We're just fine-tuning them. We're not doing any major overhaul there at all. We're just trying to like adjust those dials. Most of what we read about habits, nearly all of what gets shared about building good habits or breaking bad ones, like around New Year's, when we talk about New Year's resolutions, it's all this surface stuff. It's all stuff on the, on the, on the surface. I would suggest this this morning, that the, the real reason that some people mostly succeed at building healthy habits where other people mostly fail to do so is not just because they stopped walking past the donut shop. It's not just because it became more convenient to join the gym. It's because of the strength of a person's will. It's because of the strength of the person's will, which, like a muscle, can be strengthened through use or can atrophy through neglect. It's because their wills get up off the bench 
and they take their rightful place in front of their feelings, in front of their wants, in front of their sense of entitlement or right, and every time they step up to the plate, they get stronger. The only way to build a muscle is to use it. The only way to strengthen your will is to exercise it. That's the only way to get it stronger. And in the process of doing this over and over, the person becomes able. The person becomes powerful enough to actually establish patterns by choosing well, even when doing so is difficult. And it almost always is. Now, there are two more pieces in the architecture of a healthy habit that are often ignored in most discussions about building or breaking habits, and I want to touch on those. I think they're critical to get a glimpse of, at this point, just how important these two things are, just how powerful these two pieces are for two reasons. One, not only because these two pieces create the context for success in building healthy habits or breaking bad ones, but also they underline these, two, these next two components that I'm going to share, they underline the importance and the life-changing power of, of being a part of the church. Okay. Here they are. We build healthy habits and we reform unhealthy habits on the foundation of belief and community. Belief and community. You could say that we build healthy habits or we reform unhealthy ones, if you don't like the pyramid analogy, uh, within the context of belief and community. Or put really, really simply, you probably won't succeed at trying to build that good habit that you're working on unless you believe you can and others believe you can. So let me say a word about belief and then a word about community. We'll wrap it up. The teachings from the Bible inform a view of the self Inform a view of you. Inform an understanding of our personhood that is incredibly valuable, intentional, and hopeful. If you read the Bible, you will read that you are profoundly loved by God. You will read that you are valuable because God loves you. You'll read that you were created on purpose and for a purpose. And you'll read that all the evil and brokenness and disappointment that we experience in this world will be overcome by love, as demonstrated in the resurrection. So we have this supreme reason to hope. So this is what the Bible invites us to believe. Just radically simplified right there, right? In other words, according to Scripture and the testimony of the church, you can be filled with the very Spirit of God. In other words, the spirit that is in you is greater than the spirit that is in the world or the spirit that is opposing you. In other words, as Daryl said this morning, the same spirit that rose Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives within you. The power that is in you is the same power. That means you can overcome. That's what that means, right? You can succeed. It is possible. You can be faithful in that difficult situation. You absolutely can. You can change. You can be whole. You don't have to be forever defined by that wound. You don't have to be a victim. Okay? It doesn't have to be part of your narrative forever and ever. 
Amen. You can forgive your mother. You can lose 10 pounds. You can raise 330000 for a rescue home for children. Of course you can. Of course you can. You can do that. Because it's not all about your resources yourself, right? It's about the power that exists. In, and it's not about technique. Even though I'm sure there are a lot of good techniques that we could learn in this regard. Friends, it's about good theology. That's what it's about. It's about believing the right thing. It's about saying no to, that, to those voices in your head that are telling you lies. You're not good enough. That's a, that is a lie, okay? Uh, it's not important enough to God. That the, that's a lie, right? Uh, there's no real reason to hope in this situation. Lie. That's a lie. It's about right belief. You, if you don't believe that you can change, you probably won't. It's critical, right? And here's what's really interesting. Belief doesn't just support your personal experience of building or breaking habits. Your personal, like uh, that way, belief supporting habits, but your personal experiences, especially as they become habitual, they become routine. As your experiences become routine, then they also affect what you believe. They end up reinforcing what you believe in a very healthy way. In other words, if you choose to believe based on what you read in Scripture that you can have a real relationship with God, that, that, you, that you, you might establish a habit of sitting with God in the morning and being with God through prayer. If you believe that that's possible, that you believe that's what the Bible says is possible, you might begin a habit of spending focused time with God. And then if you experience, in a sense, the presence of God with you in these moments and it becomes habitual, then that reinforces your belief. And so now it's not just something that you believe intellectually, but it's something that you know, right? So it goes both ways. Or maybe as another example, you believe based on what you read in Scripture that God provides financially. God provides for your resources, your practical needs. And so you choose, you use your will to make the decision to establish a habit of sharing some of your resources with your local church. And as you trust God habitually, you experience his provision, which then takes that belief from an intellectual place to an experiential place. And guess what? You just got changed. That's what just happened. You just changed. The thing that some people say, That'll ne I can't, it's impossible. People don't really change. Yeah, they actually do. They actually do really change. So beliefs support habits, and habits reinforce what we believe. It's not just unidirectional. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Now, quickly, a word about community. The fact that we're reading these truths in a book that was written two and 3,000 years ago that was passed down and preserved for the last 2,000 years through different cultures and languages is a testimony to the power of community. The fact that I'm retelling these ideas to you and we're meeting together essentially around this shared sense of at least fascination, if not value, uh, for this book that includes these teachings is a testimony to the role of community a value that's been passed down from others to ourselves. In other words, formation happens in community. That's where it happens. Formation happens in community. Good habits are built, bad habits are broken in community. We cheer one another on. I think of times that I've worked hard to establish a new habit or to break a bad one. Whether it was training for a marathon, writing a book, being less, less selfish in my marriage, being more faithful in prayer, any time, any time I've succeeded, there have been others around me who believe in me and who believe in God's power in me. 
and cheer me on. Anytime I've succeeded. It's been brought to you in part by my community, right? Who believed in me and believed in God's power in me. In some cases, literally running beside me, right? Like Steve did when I was just trying to breathe following a, a horrible health diagnosis in our family, right? Uh, asking me hard questions, like a couple guys in the church do. Watching my kids so that I can keep my commitment to take my wife out on a date, right? The community uh, um, supporting, enabling, being the... the uh, Context in which real transformation happens. I'm talking about the church is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church. So when I say good habits or good beliefs support good habits, I'm talking about theology. And when I say good community supports good habits, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about theology in the church. I'm talking about belief and community, to use words maybe a little bit more accessible. Like... Um, with, like with beliefs, the role of community is also reciprocal. Community supports my building of healthy habits. My building of healthy habits or my breaking of bad ones makes my community stronger. Right? So let me try to sew it together here. What's the point? <laughs> What's the point, Nate? Where are you going at? I'm um, talking about emotional health. We're talking about becoming whole. So today I'm trying to say basically two things. First, in order to become whole... Um, that's not it. Uh, let's see. There we go. In order to be whole, uh, you need to establish healthy routines. You need to establish good and holy habits in all areas of your life in order to become whole. In other words, you need healthy habits, and we need you to have healthy habits. Okay? That's one of the things I'm saying. That holy routines are the building blocks of a spirituality that makes a difference. Show me somebody who's making a difference, and I'll show you somebody who can list a bunch of routines that they do, habits that they've kept, ways that they have, a rule that they live by. These are not just occasionally, every once in a while, and I think about it, I do this. This is every year for the last 15 years I've done this. Or, and I'm not saying you've got to be a spiritual master. You could be in a position this morning where you're just trying to survive the morning. But what I'm saying is that this is the step that you need to take, right? Exercising your will in this regard. Healthy habits build a life that is whole. Healthy habits sustain a life that impacts others. So my first point this morning is to urge you to engage your will in order to form healthy habits. And secondly, I want to say that the church is the best place to do that. The community of Christ Church is the best place to make that happen. It's the best place to grow. Not on your own, in other words. Not by yourself. But in the context of the faith that's passed down by the prophets, revealed in Christ, celebrated and revealed by the apostles, with the community of others that are on the journey with us. Friends, I want you to know that this is a community of becoming, not of having arrived. This is a community of uh, becoming, which means that this is a place where change happens. So some of you are kind of on the look at all the great change that has happened, and some of you are the look at all the, all the change that needs to happen, and I'm saying you're all welcome, and we need to be here together, right? Because it works that way. Uh, this is a safe place to grow. It doesn't matter, as I said, if you're on top of your game or you're just trying to survive another day. If you're wanting to grow, if you're wanting to, lear to learn, if you're wanting to go deeper into trust, if you want to experience more peace, 
If you want to become more whole, then church is a great place for you to be. And I want to say that this church, this community especially, as we pursue what we believe is God's instruction for us in terms of our vision, which is to restore all things, this church specifically should be very fertile soil for growth, for change, for restoration to happen. So I encourage you to embrace your church as a place, yes, where you worship and yes, where you serve, but also where you grow. Also where you grow. And I hope that you will see your life in seasons that are short enough that you can be intentional about embracing and taking advantage of the time that you've been given to do that, to grow. Amen? I, I desperately want for us to become stronger, individually and as a church. And I believe that uh, that means we got to cheer one another on as we establish good habits and as we do that together in the messiness and the glory of it all, right? All right. Good. Let's pray together. What's on my heart, Lord, is a desire for wholeness, that the hurt that so often takes the lead during the week would be systematically addressed with health and healing, and uh, that rather than being tossed around by our feelings, our wants, our demands, that over time, increasingly, there would be a steadiness in us, a depth of character, a strength of will that wouldn't do away with the wounds, but that would fortify us to face them. And um, that over time, we just become a stronger community. We become stronger families, stronger marriages, stronger faith, more whole, more healthy. And so toward that end, Lord, I pray for your help your grace, your mercy. May we encourage one another forward in this process and be uh, one another's advocates. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good. Well, God bless you. Why don't you stand up with me?